welcome to another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. I'm Karen Stanbridge, and in this program, you'll hear from a number of scholars whose work appears in the May 2021 issue of the journal. As the world continues to grapple with COVID-19, sociologists, like everyone else, continue to live and work through the restrictions placed on our movements and interactions. But how do you conduct research in a pandemic? How do you collect data when you and your subjects are in lockdown? Well, if you are Kate Choi and Patrick Denise, you turn to public data sources. They wanted to see whether marginalized populations in Canada were suffering disproportionately from the virus, as they were in other countries. They're here to tell us what they found. Janice Orini and Scott Davies took a different approach. They were concerned with how pandemic school closures might affect student learning. Unable to assess students directly, however, they turned to data that they had collected for another project. They're here to discuss their results. But first, we hear from an economic sociologist who mobilized existing data and found that our understanding of ethnic economies is enriched by finer grain analyses. He tells us how. Hi everyone, I am Eric Fong and I'm Chair Professor of Sociology at the University of Hong Kong. Dr. Fong studies economic activity among racial and ethnic groups. I am uh, very much interested about the topic of race and ethnicity. In particular, I'm very much interested about ethnic businesses. I'm particularly interested in how they start the business, why they start the business, and why some people involved in ethnic business but not outside the ethnic business. Does someone um, stay there? Do they earn more, they earn less, or do they stuck there, or whether they can move in and out? To best understand these businesses, a sociologist needs to put on his economist cap, as Dr. Fong explains. The whole area actually reflecting economic sociology, because when you talk about race, and ethnicity, and you talk about business, you are basically intersect the ethnic relations as well as the the business activities. If an ethnic person run a business, they have to go through a lot of the economic decision and that involve economic dimension. But at the same time, they also rely on their ethnic relations to recruit their employees or to do the business. So there's also a sociological dimension. So that's why I think it's um, so interesting is the intersection of economic and sociology. Dr. Fong and his co-author, Bin Bin Xu, have an article in the May 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. It's entitled, Is Ethnic Representation in an Industrial Cluster Related to Earnings of Co-Ethnic Employers and Employees? The article addresses an omission in the literature, that is, the failure of prevailing research, to analyze ethnic businesses in their broader industrial context. Dr. Fong elaborates. Most of the study about ethnic business, um, either they look at a specific ethnic business as the unit of analysis, or sometimes they look at a group of ethnic business, whether they are overrepresent in a particular industrial sector, and then they, they label it as an ethnic economy, and then there's, there's all kinds of unique economic activities are operating. 
But then my paper is try to move the, the discussion one step forward. The reason is because maybe we kind of overlook one very important aspect of business that is they not only located in one particular industrial sector. But also, the、uh, industrial sector is embedded in an industrial cluster. So it means that a number of industrial sectors they are highly related and they are very similar. They are within one industrial cluster. So, for example, the garment、uh, manufacturing, or like clothing manufacturing, or the shoes manufacturing, they may be different industrial sector. But then they related to each other. That means resources may be transferred among these industrial sectors, or the the employees they can move easily from one of these industrial sector to another one. If more industrial sectors are located in industrial cluster, will the employer or employees will they earn more or will they earn less? And I think that is the the major motivation for me to、um, to start or to to work on this paper. Makes sense. An ethnic economy is shaped not only by the ethnic composition of a particular industry, but also the number and ethnic composition of cognate industries where it operates. But how does one go about testing this hypothesis? I used the 2011 Canadian National Household Survey. And the the key variable that we are very much interested in is the median earnings of Chinese in a particular industrial sector. So, in other words, in this particular study, we use Chinese as a case to illustrate the theoretical issue that we are interested in.、Um, Chinese has a high representation in the Canadian population. As well, there's a lot of study about the Chinese ethnic business, so our finding can easily can compare with other findings done in the past. Using Chinese businesses as their case study, the authors proceeded with their analysis. So,、um, the key variable that we are very much interested in is the representation of the Chinese、um, business in the industrial sector. What we do here is that we use the 2007 North American Industrial Classification System that employed by the Statistics Canada to classify different industry. So they give a number for each industry. So it can be a three-digit and it can be a two-digit. The relationship is such that within a two-digit industrial sector, there are a number of three-digit industrial sector. All the three-digit industrial sector under two-digit industrial sector, we will consider that one industrial cluster, and we want to look at the the difference between employers and and employees. So when we run the analysis, we look at the earnings of the Chinese employer. In a particular three-digit industrial sector, and another set of analysis for the Chinese employees. So, what did they find? Dr. Fang highlights some results. I think one thing is very, very important, and I think it's also obvious is that、um, the representation of the co-ethnic employer or employees within the industrial sector within an industrial cluster. Can have the effect on the earnings. So, for example, if someone, an employer, working in an industrial sector, 
located in an industrial cluster that has quite a number of co-ethnic entrepreneurs, then they will have a negative earning relationship. Another important finding is that within the industrial cluster, the relationships are different for employers and employees. So that means we should not just only looking at everyone, we should separate to look at the co-ethnic employers and co-ethnic employees, and the, the, the relationships are quite different. The results of the study show that if we want to know more about the factors that contribute to differences in the economic attainment of different ethnic groups, we need to conduct finer grain analyses of ethnic economies. I think the important uh, lesson we learn from here is it's not just only one layer of ethnic embeddedness. The paper uh, strongly and clearly show that when we think about ethnic embeddedness, that can be more than one level or one layer. That can be two levels. But in the past, I guess most of our understanding of ethnic embeddedness is focusing only on one layer. But here, I think we suggested that we may want to look at more than one layer. Ethnic business or ethnic economy, they are not just only running in a very independent or, or isolated manner. They are also embedded within a larger industrial cluster. Read the article, Is Ethnic Representation in an Industrial Cluster Related to Earnings of Co-Ethnic Employers and Employees by Eric Fong and Binbin Xu in the May 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. As parents, teachers, and kids all know, COVID-19 has wreaked havoc on the education system. What has been the impact of all the cancelled classes on kids' learning? Two sociology of education specialists wanted to find out. I'm Janice Arini. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Waterloo. I'm Scott Davies. I'm a professor and Canada Research Chair at the University of Toronto. My departments are uh, Leadership Higher in Adult Education and also affiliated with the Department of Sociology at U of T. Dr. Orini and Dr. Davies have an article in the May 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology entitled COVID-19 School Closures and Education Achievement Gaps in Canada, Lessons from Ontario's Summer Learning Research. As Dr. Orini explains, their interest in the subject was both professional and personal. Well, I think when schools initially closed March of 2020, and we and a lot of people thought that it would just be a short few weeks of school closures, and we really were not that concerned about our kids or children more generally in Canada missing a, a little bit more school. However, as we've come to learn, those weeks uh, turned into months, and We, both as parents as well as researchers, became increasingly worried about the impact of school closures on children. Certainly reports were starting to uh, trickle in about the impact on children's mental health, their well-being, the challenges in terms of delivering a lot of other services that schools provide, things like breakfast programs, but also uh, the challenges that were emerging with the absence of teacher oversight. But how could they assess the effects of school cancellations on students when they were prevented from collecting any new data? Well, they got creative and turned to data that they had collected as part of a different study. 
for Scott and I, we had the benefit of, of many years of research on summer setback. So the loss of uh, literacy and numeracy skills that happens over the summer months. And we knew that summer vacations, you know, can erode children's skills and widen achievement gaps. And so we started to sort of think about surely um, this extended period of school closures would potentially uh, worsen those losses. So we began to think about like, how could we leverage our existing data in a creative way to extrapolate from summer learning losses and think about the potential impacts of not just a two-month summer vacation, but as we came to learn, uh, five months of, of non-school time. The data that Irene and Davies had on the effects of summer holidays on student learning lent itself well to the pandemic situation. I guess our main question was, you know, what were the likely learning shortfalls that were caused by the COVID school closures in 2020? The summer learning research design, it's a really handy tool for comparing how kids progress or regress during school months, regular school months versus times when they're out of school. So we actually had five years of data across 14 different cohorts that if you combine French versus English students, numeracy versus literacy and all the different years that we tested them, we actually have 14 cohorts. And so the, our idea was like, let's use their rates of learning during the school year and also during the summer months to make some extrapolations, some best guesses about what would have happened during last year's school closures. Here, Scott Davies describes the different models they were able to test with their existing data. Okay, three different scenarios. A best case scenario that would be business as usual, where kids would learn at rates that were uh, similar to typical school years. And then we had a worst case scenario that assumed that the rollout of online learning last spring was a bust, that the kids were really uh, learning uh, akin to what they might learn during a typical summer without an intervention of any sort. And then a medium case where we likened last spring's learning to what they might learn in a rather short-term summer program. So what did their data suggest was the impact of the spring 2020 lockdowns on student learning? Well, it's not good news. Our results seem to line up with around either the worst case scenario or the medium case scenario. That's looking at the average typical learner. If you look at kids at more of the extremes, you know, those who are who might be placed in the upper versus the lower quartiles, that's where you see some pretty serious divergence occurring, where their outcomes are probably really dissimilar. And if you read our paper, you'll see that we estimate uh, gaps that could occur of about 1.5 years worth of, of learning, according to our metrics. Orini and Davies suggest that student achievements suffered during the lockdown of spring 2020. And it's likely that the achievement gap between the kids at the top and the bottom of the numeracy and literacy scales actually grew more than what they'd ordinarily expect. Scott Davies explains. The widening of the learning gaps is something that's perhaps the most worrisome and a really important take home that, you know, kids' fortunes in terms of literacy and numeracy, they tend to diverge even in the best case scenarios when they're in good schools and during regular school years. 
but things diverge more when they're out of school. Another result, those two scenarios, the worst case and the medium case, they seem to be jiving with data that's really come out recently from the US, Netherlands and Brazil. So it gives us confidence in those unfortunate uh, results there. Perhaps another one is that voluntary summer programs, they can be inconsistent and modest in their effects, but they tend to be pretty beneficial in helping kids take a bite out of those um, learning gaps and learning losses. Given the results of the study, there are good reasons then for us to be concerned about the impact of the spring 2020 school closures on student learning. If anything, their research underestimates their adverse effects, as Janice Arini cautions. I think we're going to be feeling the effects of school closures for, for years to come. Um, you know, certainly we had no idea that school closures would last as long, um, never mind all the ongoing disruptions with back and forth. Certainly remote was a lot better in Canada than it was, let's say, in the in spring of last year, but it's tough. And anecdotally, we're hearing that some kids just completely disengaged um, during remote learning, despite teachers' very best efforts. Um, some children have literally, they're just missing in action. Like, what's happened with those kids? Where are they? Have they had any opportunity to learn uh, throughout this entire school year? So in this paper, we identify learning losses, but we, I think we want to be really clear is that we're not saying the other things don't matter. Schools provide a lot of other things. And I think losing uh, schooling during this time period, I think has made uh, certainly us as parents appreciate all the functions that schools serve. It's all the other things that have been lost during this pandemic, like you know, recreation, opportunities to participate in clubs and other things like field trips and sports activities and so forth. And those things have been lost. So it's, you know, again, we're not just saying it's only about literacy and numeracy. We recognize the whole menu of things that schools provide. A final point. Although sociologists have exposed many flaws in mass public schooling, this study shows that public education still reduces class-based achievement gaps, at least somewhat. One take-home is from, I think, his experience with COVID is that it does resonate with, uh, I think, a major message in a lot of sociology of education. We talk about the equalizing function of schoolings, that they actually tend to equalize a lot of child outcomes compared to non-school environments. And I think we know in a lot of sociology, that's heresy. That seemed to be something that you can't say. We always emphasize how schools, you know, reproduce inequality and, and make things worse, perhaps. But I think that the uh, take home from about the past 15 months or so has been a renewed appreciation for how live in-person schooling can benefit you know, the vast majority of children. Find Janice Arini and Scott Davies' article, COVID-19 School Closures and Educational Achievement Gaps in Canada, Lessons from Ontario's Summer Learning Research, in the May 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. In the last segment, you heard how two sociologists produced new research in the time of COVID. Next, we hear from two more scholars who did the same thing, but through different means. My name is Kate Choi. 
I'm an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at Western University and the acting director of the Center for Research on Social Inequality at Western as well. And I'm Patrick Denise. I'm an assistant professor also in the Department of Sociology at Western. Choi and Denise, along with Michael Hahn and Anna Zayakova, have an article in the May 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology called Studying the Social Determinants of COVID-19 in a Data Vacuum. Dr. Choi explains what motivated the team to undertake this research. We started to conduct this research at the onset of the pandemic, and what was going on was that there was mounting evidence from the United States and the UK that racial and ethnic minority populations were more vulnerable to COVID-19. And as a result, many uh, epidemiologists and social scientists in Canada were writing op-eds about the need to collect race-based COVID-19 data and to assess whether visible minority populations in Canada were more vulnerable to COVID-19. Yet some public health officials in Canada were saying that they saw no need for the collection of such data because, quote, all groups were equally important to them. And because the priorities at the time were the elderly and and those living in nursing and long-term care homes. So how do you assess the impact of the virus on marginalized populations without data that specifies the race or ethnicity of its victims? Because so little data was being collected about the race or ethnicity of COVID-19 patients, we wanted to think of creative ways of compiling the data that was available sort of out in the public domain. And so we set about to examine whether COVID-19 infections were more prevalent in Canadian communities that had higher shares of racial minorities, of immigrants, uh, and low-income residents as well. And we want to take this sort of nationwide look. Choi, Denise, and their team turned to publicly available data to fill what they called the data vacuum. It involved combining and overlapping a number of different data sets. We relied on four sources of data. For the first step where we're looking at nationwide COVID-19 rates, we relied on the data set that was coming from the University of Toronto's COVID-19 Canada Open Data Working Group that collected information on the daily counts of COVID-19 infections as well as deaths between January 21st, 2020 and January 24th, 2021. And for that, we obtained the COVID-19 infection counts for 89 health regions excluding Yukon Northwest Territories and Nunavut, where there were very little COVID-19 infection rates reported. Then we linked it with information about the sociodemographic characteristics in composition for health regions, and that came from Statistics Canada, and in particular, the 2016 Canadian Census. And the second part of our analysis we conducted data for Toronto that had more data than average uh, neighborhoods in Canada. And for those, we used the open source data that was provided by the city of Toronto, as well as the COVID-19 infection counts that were reported by Toronto Public Health. 
Here, Dr. Denise describes the creative ways that the researchers piece together and analyze their data to help answer their research questions. Using those data, um, our analyses consisted of a few different parts. Uh, in the first place, we estimated regression models using the pooled data at the health region level to try and identify some risk factors uh, for cumulative COVID-19 infection and death counts. Although this COVID-19 data was available for health regions, it's important to know that these are really large, socially varied communities, on average, about 400,000 people. I think we know that COVID-19 transmission happens on a much more local level. And so we thought that it might be more useful to use that information to try and identify COVID-19 hotspots at a lower level of geography. So in the second stage of our analysis, we used, as Kate was saying, the demographic profiles of communities, census divisions and subdivisions, along with our regression results from the health regions to try and identify and highlight lower level community hotspots. Uh, these communities are much smaller than the health regions, on average about 7,000 people. And then finally, in the last stage of our analysis, we replicated our results for one large city that was hit especially hard by the pandemic, and that's Toronto. As Kate noted, data on both COVID-19 infections and the demographic composition were available for Toronto at the neighborhood level, so even finer grained than the communities we were looking at nationwide. And so we were able to see whether our nationwide results were consistent with a particular city. What did Choi, Denise, and their team find out about the social determinants of COVID-19 in Canada? We found that COVID-19 infections were higher in communities with larger shares of Black and low-income residents, consistent uh, with research elsewhere. Second, we found that the same was generally true for Toronto as well. Uh, COVID-19 infections spread much faster in neighborhoods in the city with higher shares of Black residents. And then third, I think our methodology offers the way of, again, creatively leveraging publicly available data to examine the relationship between the racial composition of communities uh, and COVID-19, and to identify hotspots on a much more local level uh, than the data were being reported. For instance, we were able to predict that places like uh, Northeast Alberta and Northern Saskatchewan would experience higher COVID-19 infection rates combining insights about COVID-19 risk factors, as well as the demographic profiles of communities. These patterns, I think it's important to note, were just not visible when we looked at COVID-19 infection and death counts at the very high level of health regions. In fact, looking at these huge regions masks a lot of important and more localized uh, variation. We can see then that publicly available data can reveal hitherto hidden social patterns when in the hands of skilled sociology researchers. But it also confirms that Canada needs more data that identifies the race and ethnicity of subjects. For many years, Canada has not systematically collected racial or ethnic data on grounds that it is a multicultural country where racial and ethnic inequality does not exist. And even if it collected data, it tends to collect race, ethnicity, and nativity data within the same data set. So it kind of has 
the tendency to obfuscate these important distinctions. So one of the key take-home points from our study is to highlight the importance of collecting high-quality racial and ethnic data and conducting methodologically rigorous analysis that showcase where racial and ethnic inequalities exist, and also what are the social mechanisms giving rise to racial and ethnic inequality. The pandemic just highlighted inequalities that were already there. And so even as we're emerging from the pandemic, paying close attention to racial and ethnic inequalities and disparities remains important even beyond the pandemic. And perhaps partly that can be an improvement for our new normal as we are emerging outside of the pandemic. Read the article, Studying the Social Determinants of COVID-19 in a Data Vacuum, by Kate Choi, Patrick Denise, Michael Hahn, and Anna Zayakova, in the May 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. Next time, I'll be talking to scholars whose work appears in the August 2021 issue of the journal. So stay tuned. I'm Karen Stanbridge. Music